Uninvisible is a support podcast that deals squarely with medical issues that present unique advocacy issues for individuals. We do not provide medical advice. Please consult with your physician for any medical issue that you are facing. Information and comments that you send to us are governed by our terms of service and privacy policy which are available on our website located at uninvisiblepod.com. The opinions expressed by guests are their own and are not necessarily the opinion of Uninvisible or the show sponsors. Any advertising that you may hear is accepted without regard to our editorial content. Welcome to Uninvisible. I'm your host, Lauren Friedman. And I'm here with my guests to bring you info, insights, and inspiration for coping with, diagnosing, and treating invisible illness. We're here oversharing, so you don't have to struggle with invisibility anymore. This episode is sponsored by Ember Labs, creators of the Ember Wave, the intelligent bracelet that helps control how you experience temperature. I'm heat sensitive, and this device has been a lifesaver. Using patented technology, it cools or warms the temperature-sensitive skin on your wrist, creating a natural response in your body and mind that helps you thermally adjust in minutes. It was selected by Time Magazine as one of 2018's best inventions. For those of you with mounting medical costs to consider, the team at Ember offer a payment plan in partnership with a firm. And because you listen to Uninvisible Pod, they are offering you $30 off. Go to emberlabs.com, that's E-M-B-R-Labs.com, Enter code INVISIBLE30, that's INVISIBLE30, at checkout, and experience personal thermal wellness on a whole new level with me. A trigger warning that this episode includes a graphic description of vaginal surgery. Okay, guys, thank you so much for joining us. I am here today with the author of The Lady's Handbook for Her Mysterious Illness. You may also know her as musician Wolf Larson. Everyone, welcome Sarah Ramey to the show. Sarah, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It is such a pleasure. As I mentioned to you before we started the interview, I I had the pleasure of finishing your book just before getting on this call. (laughs) And um, it is truly a joy to read. It's out now, I believe. Am I right? Yeah, it just came out. Yeah, literally just. So I'm very happy to have you on the show. You live with multiple chronic illnesses, invisible chronic illnesses, and you're going to walk us through a bit of that journey. So why don't we start at the very beginning? I know it's a tall order, but can you tell us when and how you first realized something was going on and, and what steps you have since taken to control your health? Yeah, so for me, um, you know, in as we go through in the book, I have, I have a pretty complex problem, but uh, one of those problems is chronic fatigue syndrome and that, um, uh, you know, anybody that has chronic fatigue, there's sort of two ways it comes on. There's the gradual slow onset or there's the abrupt onset. And in my case, it was the abrupt onset. I was a, a senior in college at, at Bowdoin and I was, you know, I mean, I was like, extremely active. I was directing the school musical and I was in the loud rock band and I was in an acapella group and, but I had these really persistent uh, urinary tract infections. And so I went to a bunch of doctors. We kept treating me with antibiotics. It didn't really go away. And so I finally went to this one urologist over winter break, um, who was a colleague of my parents and my parents are both uh, physicians. And I went to this doctor and he said, 
Well, I actually don't think you have a UTI at all. I think it's just muscle spasm. So what I'd like to propose is this procedure called uh, a urethral dilation, which is when they put an instrument inside the urethra and they uh, stretch or rip it a little bit um, and just with a little bit of lidocaine jelly like right there in the office. You're making it sound much less gruesome than it actually was. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what it's supposed to be like. It's That's how he described it. He was like, yeah. just the way I just described it to you. He was like, it's really no big deal. A 90-year-old woman, we just did it for her down the hall. She did it. You can do it. <laughs> so mm. That 90-year-old woman like always sticks in my memory because for me, that was like, oh, well, this is a piece of cake. I can do it. Mm. And so I go in, I saddle up, and uh, he starts with the procedure. And it's really not supposed to be very painful. And it was like just like being hit by a bolt of lightning in my urethra. And it was so, so painful. And... It's just it's just this horrifying sort of experience kind of uh the next few minutes uh in the office where he was kind of yelling at me and I was screaming and crying. It was just like a big it was horrible it was horrible. And uh but I really thought that that was just once it was over, that that was just like, you know, tough. But I was but that'll be it. That should solve everything. It. it was just like exactly and and, and not just not just like that it wasn't going to, that it was going to resolve my UTI, but obviously that it wasn't going to start the beginning of this like horrible snowball of illness that would like roll down the mountain for the rest of my life. Well, and this was in the early 2000s when this happened too. Yeah, this is 2003. And so, uh, yeah. And so I, I go home that night and I've got, you know, some real pelvic pain, but I'd had some pelvic pain before that. That's why I was there. So I was like, well, this is just a little bit worse because of the procedure. I don't feel good, but of course this is, I've just been through a a shock and so it'll be fine by tomorrow. And then that night I wake up and I'm like drenched in sweat, like 104 fever. uh, And I'm, you know, shaking and I go down, I was home. And so I go down to, to my mom's room and she, she knew that I had become septic. And so she took me to, the hospital hospitalized for a week and I had, I had become septic because, you know, they didn't know why they're like, you know, who knows, who knows, like weird things happen sometimes in medicine and you're septic, but you're so lucky that we caught it like right away. And I was put on all these antibiotics. And again, it was like, you know, this is really unfortunate, but of course you're going to go home and you're going to be fine. Everything is going to mm-hmm. be just fine. And it wasn't fine. It was the beginning of just incredibly severe pelvic pain. Um, all of a sudden I was so fatigued and fatigue is the wrong word, like just like mortal exhaustion, constantly mm-hmm. sleeping all day long. And my and the thing that for me, I think really made me feel like something was genuinely wrong was my muscles hurt. Like everything, like when you're sick, it's like my muscle, everything hurt all over. Like I had the flu. And so that to me mm. was like, I know, I, I know what it feels like to feel sick and this is it. And so yeah. something is clearly wrong. And, but still, you know, we just thought that it would get better. And so I kept going, I went back to school on an IV line of antibiotics that I, carried around with me. Um, and I just started to get worse and worse and worse. And, and, and that's when, you know, I started to go back to doctors to try to like, it was clear that something was, that I was, something was wrong and something had begun that was bad. And so I went to a million 
doctors over the course of really the next year to try to get to the bottom of it. To and and this is where you know normally my you know extreme privilege being like a a white lady of like relative economic privilege with doctor parents really would have should have been the thing that like yeah prevented me from falling into a black hole in medicine mm-hmm. and and it didn't mm-hmm. uh, it i you know saw doctor after doctor after doctor and they all took it really seriously in the beginning but as all the tests came back negative 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 that's when what happens to you know i feel like every single one of us that has one of this type of illness when when the test said um, there's nothing wrong. Then the doctor started to say, there's nothing wrong with you. And what I would recommend is psychiatric counseling. And yeah, that, this is another classic trope we're hearing in the story, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And it's yeah. like, and so, so that, that's how it began. And that, um, that was the experience kind of in like the first two years was just constantly being, you know, battered around the system of having very severe fatigue feeling sick all the time and really severe uh, pelvic pain. And also my, the other things, my colon stopped working and being told, even though I had all these really severe problems that it was just psychological. As one doctor said to my parents while I was sitting right there, he looks over his spectacles, my parents, and he goes, well, like so many other young women her age, this problem is obviously psychological. I'd say, (laughs) I'd say that judgment is more the psychological problem than anything else. Oh That's exactly God. how I feel. I'm like, this is not a problem in the psyche of the patients. This is a problem in the psyche of the physicians. And it's and it's systemic. It is systemic. And it is, I, I think it's it's unconscious. It's like it's like so many other problems in mm-hmm. the culture of unconscious bias, but I don't think it's like an active, active malice usually. But mm-hmm. but that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that you have unconscious bias. It is still your responsibility to root that out and to not inflict that on other people. Well, and I think yeah. one of the things you really get to in your book is the fact that right now this is, we're looking at, and we'll get more into this further along in this interview, but right now we're looking at these kinds of chronic illnesses that are largely affecting women that mm-hmm. are being overlooked and brushed under the rug, you know, um, yeah. but there will come a time when they will affect more than just women, you know, yes. and the medical system will have to respond. So if we don't take precautionary action now and start adopting functional medicine principles, which you discovered through Dr. Mark Hyman and others, you know, there is going to be no way to stop this epidemic from continuing to flood our humanity. Which, which arguably has happened. I I really think we're way, way past the tipping point with all of these problems. So many people are so sick, but it really is because it's predominantly women that it's somehow completely invisible. It's just this big, like I always say, because people are like, well, why are they, why are these, what, what is it about these illnesses that makes them so mysterious? I'm like, nothing. They're not different from a regular illness. It's because they're not researched. It's because they're not doing the work to figure out how to see them, right? How to, yeah. how to demystify them. That comes through research and that comes through funding and that's it. Yeah. Mystery yep. solved. <laughs> solved. Absolutely. Like, yeah. I mean, you, you mentioned in the book, you know, the, the, sort of disparity in funding between cancer research, HIV AIDS research, and MECFS research. And, um, you know, just the fact that there are doctors who you quote in the book that who, who talk about MECFS being far more severe than HIV AIDS. 
mm-hmm. um, in many cases, and yet being proportionally, I mean, funded less than 1% in comparison. Right. And and so to, to be clear, you know, HIV AIDS, obviously when it progresses and it's uncontrolled, yes. when, you're, when it's not taken care of, then it's, then it's worse, then it's terminal and it's a misery. But as anybody that takes care of both of these um, conditions, they, they all say the same thing, that the entire experience of having severe ME-CFS is what it's like to be in the very final end stages of AIDS or cancer or one of these horrible diseases. Mm. And so the idea that they would be treated so disproportionately is is insane it doesn't it does not make any sense and and most people i think are not aware of how disproportionate the funding is for these types of things so like mm. cancer and aids like they both get sort of in the you know six, the billions six, yeah 6 billion plus for both um each and uh MECFS, uh Last year, I think the funding was 14 million. Mm. And so like, if you're looking at that on a graph, it's like, it's like the, the CFS, the MECFS research wouldn't even register. It's like, it's just like, it's, it's literally like having one penny versus like a thousand dollars. I mean, it's just, it's not, it's, they're in completely different stratospheres. And so of course we don't understand, of course it's a mysterious illness because Mm. they're not doing the work to try to understand we haven't solved cancer and that's yeah. with six billion every year yeah. so the idea that we could understand MECFS is is ludicrous that's what bothers me a lot about whenever mm-hmm. a doctor sort of uh, comes in and sort of authoritatively says like well like if there was something really going on here we would know and it's like mm-hmm. no you wouldn't you're not trying you, know, <laughs> you haven't conducted the studies well oh, here you are almost 20 years later and you're still figuring things out I mean right by by the time you got to the end of writing the book, which is 2019-2020, right, you were at this point diagnosed not just with ME-CFS, um, but also with a host of other very tangible diagnoses that, that still took doctors years and years to give you. Yes. Uh, so notably, uh, also, these are all sort of commonly comorbid with chronic fatigue syndrome, which is important because just like heart disease, diabetes, metabolic syndrome that commonly run together, that are commonly comorbid with each other, these problems over here, it's very common for them to go together. So I also have something called POTS or postural orthostatic tachycardia. That's a really common WOMI problem. So a WOMI, we haven't said this, a WOMI is a woman with a mysterious illness. It's a word that I use to sort of like put a big umbrella over all of us to kind of collect this this group of patients that is disparate right now, but it's not disparate. I do think that it's all a connected sort of family of neuroendocrine immune problems um, that, that, that there's, it's sort of the neuroendocrine immune branch mm. of the same chronic illness tree <laughs> that, yeah. that we can see when it affects men and women equally <laughs> and we mm-hmm. can't see it when it predominantly affects women. Like that branch is like, well, sorry, I can't. Which is also no to do with talking about. medical bias in research, not yes. just in treatment, but also in, in the fact that what we're researching, and we've talked about this on, on the show before, what we're seeing in research predominantly is male tissue, male yes. animals, you know, and, yes. and very infrequently are we seeing that balance being met. And it was only, and you mentioned this in your book as well, until the nineties, it wasn't until the nineties that, that it was mandated that any kind of publicly funded research include women. 
Yeah, exactly. My grandmother was actually one of the scientists that lobbied to to have that change made at the NIH. And it, which is, you would think, I I think most people just have no idea that that's the case, that that's something that would have been sorted out, you know, maybe in the sixties, like, or something, you know, like (laughs) during the women's movement, the 1990s, like 91 was, that's recently. Yeah. There's another statistic that, you know, it takes about 17 years for medical research to work its way into sort of your garden variety doctor's office, yeah. their practice. So that sounds, a, that sounds actually, I would say it would take longer than that. Right. But sounds, that sounds a very fair estimate. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the average. And so if, if that's true, then the, the first studies that they started actually legitimately including women, and they obviously have not reached full parity, that would have only worked its way into your regular medical doctor's office in 2007 mm. <laughs> or eight, you know? And so that's really recently. And that's just with the very, very beginning of that, that really important shift in studying men and women's bodies uh, in any sort of equal measure. So well, and that's, that's also right. presuming that, that these measures are actually stuck to in the actual research. And oh, we yeah. know in practice that that's not the case. A, no, yeah. it definitely is not. It, it definitely is not. And I actually had a really good doctor recently who <laughs> I was responding poorly to a medication and I was so used to being, to like apologizing for this because I was so used to, if I respond badly for them being like, oh, you right. people, you're so oversensitive as if it's my fault. And I had kind of internalized that and I had, I started like apologizing to her about this. And she was like, what are you talking about? She was like, do you know that most medications are only tested on like white middle-aged men? (laughs) She's like, so if Mm -hmm. you're responding, you know, however you're responding to it, that's totally legitimate. And that's probably just because, you know, it's not in the literature because they didn't study people like you. And, you know, you Mm -hmm. should feel completely legitimate in the way that you're responding. And I was like, mm, you're right. I've been just floored by that. that. That's like the <laughs> nicest thing a doctor's ever said to you. <laughs> I know. I couldn't believe it. I was just like, uh, I, but that's, that is the appropriate science-based response. Like yes. that's what sort of struck me about it was like, oh, this is somebody that's actually paying attention to the science, mm. like that ha- doesn't have their own emotional overlay on top of the science and th- that is pretending that that emotional overlay is the science. <laughs> yeah. So you've mentioned, okay, we've got MECFS, we've got POTS. Um, yeah. What else are we working with here? We've also got complex regional pain syndrome. So mm-hmm. that um, is like a very severe pain syndrome that sort of starts to accrete or, or it can come on suddenly, but it can, it, it's basically usually secondary to some kind of nerve damage, um, mm. which in my case is what they figured out later that I had had pretty severe nerve damage from that initial incident. Um, mm. We didn't know that until really recently. And so um, complex regional pain syndrome, uh, I was finally diagnosed with that it was 10, 10 years in before I got that diagnosis. But that was a really helpful one because that's like a pain syndrome that is so far beyond just like regular chronic pain. But that's what I had been saying. I was like, this is not like back pain or, or something that I, that is bad. I have, I have fibromyalgia or I have like myalgic type pain and that's really bad, but this is like a completely different, this is like an open wound with like cayenne pepper. Yeah. Well, and this was something that you also had that was persistent throughout your entire experience and related to Mm -hmm. the left side of your body because it ended up radiating Mm -hmm. down your leg and everything, but it started like in your labia and Mm -hmm. it almost presented like vulvodynia, but like obviously wasn't that 
right? Right, right. So, right. I'd been diagnosed with vulvodynia for forever, but mm. even my doctors, they were like, I mean, obviously this is like the worst case of vulvodynia we've ever seen, mm. but, but they didn't take it a step further to say, well, what it actually looks like is this other thing called complex regional pain syndrome, which involves all the swell. I had a lot of swelling in that area where it starts to spread over the body, which is what happened to me, where it's so severe that like even just like the teeniest Q-tip touch like hurts and makes it swell. Like that, that was what I had been describing for 10 years and nobody mm-hmm. took that seriously until uh, the Mayo Clinic. They, yeah, I, I didn't have the best experience at the Mayo Clinic, but they did diagnose me with that, and that was really helpful. Well, and then subsequent, many years later, subsequently, you found out that it was actually all connected to a neuroma, right? Yeah, well, actually, so it's so it's not exactly a neuroma. It's it's, it's essentially a neuroma. It's a very dense mass of scarring and scar tissue on a network of nerves on the left side of the vagina that they found. Mm, let's see in 2017 so really recently very recently yeah yeah and the reason that they hadn't so initially I had this incident with the urologist insanely painful told we have no idea what's going on here and then initially they did do a transvaginal sonogram to look in that area which is what the right thing to do and it showed <laughs> a thickening and then like a little uh, a little mass on the left side of the vagina and it said oh, wow. and and they, but they they, also they just didn't the acknowledge thing. it like, there's nothing don't worry mm. and i there we have emails from the time of me being like what do you mean it's nothing like I'm exp- I'm describing pain right there. How can it be nothing? But everybody just said. And when we say pain, you know, also like you got to a point where you fashioned a sling for yourself, so you didn't even have to when you sat down actually be sitting. Like you were yeah. sitting on your thighs. You were mostly lying down. You were wearing dresses. You couldn't even wear pants. I mean, this is like yeah. it was affecting your everyday functioning. Like it was 100% of the time, 24 hours a day, just like extreme, extreme pain. Like I, I mean, it's still pretty bad. Like I have one pair of pants that I found from the gap um, in 2011. And I just had this one pair that doesn't hurt that much. Um, But yeah, I mean, it was, it, it should have, it was so extreme that they clearly should have repeated all of those tests. They clearly should have said like, oh, well, we actually did find a thing right mm. in the area that you're describing. Like there is no reason in the world to have like swept that under the rug, but that is what happened. And they just said the same thing over and over again, which is, you know, I know that you think quote unquote, that like, this is what's going on and this is what happened to you. And you were hurt by this big bad doctor, but we that we guarantee that is not what happened to you. And in order to repeat that transvaginal sonogram, you'd have to be under anesthesia because the pain is so bad to, to it's an internal exam. And so mm. we have to put this thing inside of you. And so they're like, you know, booking an OR for that is like, we've never done that. That would be an indulgence. We're not going to do that for you. And you're like harebrained idea that this is what's wrong with you. And, you know, it was, it was <laughs> well, and meanwhile, this thing was growing and getting bigger yes. and bigger to the point where the doctor was able to like feel it and feel get his it. hand around it. And, <laughs> yeah. and you were going to see myriad specialists who were, I mean, particularly these male specialists, right? Trying to treat or do biopsies. I mean, you had experiences. I, I mean, I, I sat reading the book and I wanted to cry for you and, and, and hug you at the same time, because you had these experiences where 
these people, I mean, you talk about the impact of stress and external stressors on our health and our immune system. And what you were experiencing were these horrible medical traumas where biopsies were being taken without any anesthesia, even local anesthesia wasn't working, but you then weren't offered, you know, pain management afterward and called a, a, you know, sort of like an opioid seeker. It's unbelievable to me the things that you went through and had a device installed in your body incorrectly. Yeah, Yeah, totally by accident because the surgeon misunderstood, which caused you even more pain, which is like, it's unconscionable to me what the medical system has forced you to endure. No, it's insanity. And it's like at every stage, I'm glad there have been other people around to witness all of it because it's just like it, it, because we do talk about stress in, in the book and how stress is like integral in a lot of these problems. It's not the only, it's not the only thing, but it's, it, it does exacerbate and I think play a pretty big role in the development of a lot of these uh, neuroendocrine immune problems. But stress does play a, a pretty significant role. I think that we're, I think as they do more and more research here, that that becomes clearer and clearer. Um, I, but, and, and knowing that this, just this, I mean, put aside the moral reason to not treat these patients like shit, like doing, p- treating these patients in such an abysmal way that just, where they're just basically abused in the system, it makes them sicker. It is like actively contributing to the worsening and acceleration of the disease. And that just... It, it just makes that, that to me, I just like your response to me, like wanting to hug me. That's how I feel. Like I just want to like throw myself on the tracks in front of all of these womans just to prevent physicians from uh, not doing just the wrong things like uh, uh, physiologically, like not, not, uh, I, I honestly, it's fine that they don't know what to do, that they don't know how to treat the disease like that. That's okay for now what really is the problem that that can stop overnight but hasn't for the entire 17 years I've been sick is the way that they treat us and the way that they are so psychologically destructive in convincing you over and over again that that you're a liar or making it up or whatever, all these horrible things. And Mm -hmm. that to me is just... That's gaslighting in action. it's, It's like... But with the severest possible yeah. consequences, because like, like my case is like a really good example. Like I had a doctor like literally like cut a piece out of my vagina in mm-hmm. front of me and tell me that my response, that my, that it being extremely painful in me, like freaking out, that that was my fault, not, not his yeah. fault for, yeah. you know. Uh, meanwhile, that. the nurse was sitting there saying, I'm so sorry. Yeah. I mean, it was just, it's, 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 it's kind of hard to describe what happened. It's in, it's in the It's book. worth reading. <laughs> it's true. It's worth reading. Re- it. it is. It's, it's a horrible scene. I mean, this is, the, that's why I say like, you've been through these absolutely gruesome, shocking, like straight out of saw. And I'm not even exaggerating <laughs> like those kinds of that level of experience, that level of pain. And it's like, it's great. Cause we can like laugh about it now. Cause these things are in the past and you have so many more answers now, but that you had to go through that and that, and as you say, that you're somebody who has physician parents, who's relatively privileged when it comes to your place in society and your financial ability to continue to pay the bills on yeah. these absolute misuses of your trust. 
you know, mm-hmm. um, is that you were duped in, in all, in the midst of all of that is frightening enough, you know, um, yeah. let alone what's happening to less fortunate com- members of the community, you know, and I, I just think it's, it's such a wake up call for us. And, and as you say, it starts, the answer starts with an F and ends with functional medicine, <laughs> you know, um, and, and that that in many ways is the answer, but in many ways, it's also about looking at everything we've established systemically, not just the medical system, but why, why bias exists, you know, yeah. um, and, and yours is a cautionary tale, but it's also important for us to understand that like, you're still here, you're still alive, but like you very nearly died more than once. Yeah, more than once. And I feel very seen when you say it's like a scene from Saw. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> but it is, I mean, reading it. It is, I know. It really, I, I think to myself, how could they possibly, and then, you know, you're bleeding and they put you in a diaper, but of course the blood's congealing and sticking to the diaper. And it's like, how could they even... But- and then I don't, I'm not the one that asks for pain medication. The nurse is like, you're going to need pain meds. I'm yeah. like, okay, I'll take one Percocet. And she goes out to ask the doctor and comes back in and says, you know, he, he actually doesn't want to give that to you. We worry about people you like know, you. patients like you. <laughs> and I was like, what? it's like what you were saying before. If you had just looked in my chart, I don't take pain medications at all because they make me so somnolent that like our, my energy is already so poor that I just can't. I would be non-functional or I am non-functional when I take those. So I don't take them. So Mm. I'm not a patient like that. Like don't, Yeah, it's just, it's just. It's truly insulting and and absolute insanity. It is. You mentioned a a minute ago, um, you know, the, the people who you've had alongside throughout this journey, your parents. Um, Can you talk a little bit about how this, experience and the ongoing experience has impacted your relationship with them, particularly as you've learned to become your own advocate and as you've seen them advocate for you? Yeah, we have been through a real journey, my parents Mm -hmm. and I. Um, You know, in the very beginning, they were obviously just like ferocious protectors of me, trying to get the best possible medical care. They thought, you know, I had some strange tropical disease and we're trying to get to the bottom of it. And then definitely as, as sort of my other physicians started to say that they thought it was psychological. I don't think my parents, they didn't like buy into that wholesale, but they certainly like, I would say entertained that idea. And we're like, you know, I mean, maybe you should just try it. Just just see what happens. Like Like heads up, you're going to need this later down the line anyway, because of all the medical (laughs) trauma. Oh. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Better get and, started uh, now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so, um, but then also it wasn't so much like there, something that began to happen was that I began to, to like not trust them because they were like avatars of the system that was being so abusive to me. And so I didn't want to go to them anymore for a while and get them involved because they would get me back on the medical merry-go-round and then that would it would be so painful and so there's a quite a bit of time where we were really at odds with each other and I would just say that it was like nobody's fault it's not their fault it's not my fault it's just like it's just a terrible situation and nobody knew what to do but then especially later I, I really became much sicker kind of starting in 2011 and 
uh, through until about 2016. And in that period, they really, uh, they, they really started to, to change and to come around to, to really thinking about things like through my eyes. And part of this, I really chalked that up to a couple of things. One was that I was just so sick that I was not able to like limp along and like mm, pretend like I was fine to the outer world while I was privately suffering, which I did that for a long time for, for a really, for a serious period of time. I mean, I had, I was living at home with my mom. I was basically unable to get my own, you know, groceries or shower or do anything. And so, Mm. uh, there was no, they, they were really confronted with like how sick I had become. Um, but also I had started to work on this book. And so I had done a lot of research about these types of illnesses and I just kept sending them all of this information. And in the beginning that did not go over well. I was like, Oh, Mm. You and your ideas about you know gut bugs like gut health has nothing to do with which all by the this. way there I mean, was a gut bug <laughs> yeah there was there was yeah. a gut worm guys there was also there a gut worm a, in the there, story there was a gut worm we yeah. we sort of don't know like exactly how that like what role that has played in my health but I definitely had a really bad tropical parasite but but um but just in terms of microbiome disruption, like when I first started learning about that, that was not a part of regular medical conversation at all. I mean, it was like completely, anyone I talked to about it was like, oh, stop Googling your illness, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, well, doctors and, told you to do that too, but of course that was the only place you were getting information. Yeah, and so, um, but but I just kept sending it to them anyways because, you know, I wanted them to try to understand. And so I think it was a combination of them seeing how sick I had become, but also like really reading more and more about people, about the science that they started to change the way that they were thinking about it. Um, And then to the point where like now they are like, you just couldn't ask for better parents and and advocates. Like they are so, um, I don't know. I mean, they're just, they, they, they have gone through like such a radical shift in themselves to, to be like the believers and champions of Womies everywhere. And, uh, yeah. and, and I've had better doctors that, as a result too. I, I mean, definitely. And yeah, even just so that they can shut down that thing that we were talking about before of the, that psychological uh, abuse essentially of like telling patients that they're, crazy like I, I think my dad definitely did this I think he would say that um and he and he stopped doing that and then he became like this uh physician that Womies would seek out in Washington mm. DC because they knew that he kind of knew what he was talking about and that he would at the very least take them seriously treat them with dignity treat them with kindness etc and that uh, I mean in the absence of actual medical care, you can at least do that. Every physician can do that and should be doing that. And that yeah. that's sort of my main hobby horse is like there is no scientific basis to be treating these patients the way that you're treating them, that they're just a bunch of liars and oversensitive ninnies. Like that yeah. is just a well there's is, actually there's there's data that shows us that that actually doesn't help anyone. That actually, when you remove your ego and you participate in someone's care, rather than creating medical trauma, then you're actually much better equipped to treat someone. Yes, exactly. So like, even if you think that like your kindness is just like 
uh, inducing some sort of placebo effect, at least you should do that. <laughs> like, yeah. like, and I, so, but, but beyond that, I mean, there's just plenty, plenty of scientific evidence to show that there's clearly something wrong in, in all of these different types of related problems. And it's not psychological. It's definitely exacerbated by stress, but it is not psychological in that, in the sense that they're suggesting that it is, that it's like mm. a hallucination or that it's or that you're quote lying unquote hysteria or, or hysteria or hypochondria, any of those things. Like it's just, it's just not that. And so, you know, you know, cause I don't, I don't want to, you know, like shame mental illness. It's just that it's not that it's, that's not what is going on like that, that it, it's just, it's, you wouldn't tell like a cancer patient might be depressed but that is not what is causing their cancer. Like you can't tell them like, well, I'm not going to, we're not going to do any like real interventions here. We're just going to, I'd rather you just went and saw your psychiatrist. Like that's just, yeah. was, that's negligent medical care. Yeah. It's negligent. It's like you would have your, your medical license stripped if you did that. And, but that's basically the routine treatment of patients like this. And it's, uh, it's wrong. I, I, yeah, I, I just, Yeah. But that said, I, I it seems like, like you've maybe found your heroes in the system. Like you've found a medical team that is getting you back on the right track. Is that right? Yeah, it's definitely it's definitely better. Um, I've I've got some doctors that I, that I really like. I mean, my my condition is not like fully managed at all. Mm. It's just that it's a lot better than before, where I couldn't get out of bed, I couldn't do anything. I was yeah. Look, substitute. you're here in this interview. This is great. Exactly. Like, this is, yeah, we know this exactly. is a marked improvement. Yeah. Very. I mean, this is, so it's just one of those things where if you're, if you haven't experienced these types of things yourself, it's like people just think of it as a binary, like either you're bedridden mm. or you're here and you've got makeup on it. So you must be fine. And it's like, well, those, those are not two yeah. binary things at all. There's like a huge uh, area in between. Mm. And so I'm, I'm kind of somewhere in, in the middle. Um, but I definitely have found, uh, some some people that on my team that I, I basically don't allow myself to ever go back to anybody that treats me in the ways that we've been talking about. Like if I, mm. that doesn't mean that I don't still experience that because I'll try to go to a new specialist or somebody that I'm trying to get better help from. And I still experience that all the time, but mm. that type of person now, I definitely won't go back and see them, but I also usually will speak up and will say, you know, I would really encourage you to learn more about this, like to Good on you. not say, mm-hmm. you know, what you just said to me, just don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's not helpful. And yeah. I'm sure that people don't say that too, because they don't feel comfortable and they don't want it to boomerang back on them. But since I'm not coming back, I'm going to say it. And so. But that's that, taken but you like, years to cultivate that, that 17 attitude. years. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like I am no so not constitutionally like, set up for that type of thing. I'm such a, like, just want everything to be, everyone to be happy and everything to be good and nice. Well, that's very typical of our expectations of, of the feminine, isn't it as well, you know? And, and this idea that like, you know, the feminine energy that balances the masculine energy is, is Mm -hmm. one of forgiveness and nurturing. But when it comes to your health, and sometimes it takes a long time to learn this, you can't take that sort of backseat role anymore. Yeah, no. And I think, and it's interesting because I think that another aspect of the feminine is like the, 
like the rageful feminine. Yes. But that everybody is so afraid of embodying mm-hmm. because it's so, so stigmatized. But I actually think that that's like a very important part of yourself to reclaim. Well, and is, I think for you, the the bright spots along the way of this journey have been when you've been able to yeah, go, oh, fuck you. Yeah, like the rage has fully set in and you've been able to like fully embrace all of those parts of who you are. It's really true. It's like always the, it is true that in the book that like, those are all like the, the best parts, <laughs> all the parts where I'm like really angry. And it's because I just do think that so much of the like quote journey for me has been unlearning niceness, like, like pathological niceness. That's like totally not in the service of me, not in the service. It's not in the service of the doctor to get no feedback that what they're doing is harmful. Like Mm -hmm. that's not good for them either. And so, but it really, but I will say, so I think it's very important to like reclaim that part of yourself. However, if that's been disowned inside of you, like if you're in this situation, it makes sense. Like you were in a really imbalanced power dynamic where like you speaking up or like talking back usually is going to boomerang back on Mm. you. And like, if you're in such a weak position where like you have no doctors, you have no medical care and your health is in free fall. It's very difficult to like talk back or to, to, to even feel like you can do that. So, so so it's just like this. So I don't mean to like to gloss over that part of it because that, that that's real. Like that's also, it wasn't me just being super nice. It was also just like trying to protect myself in a really scary, vulnerable place. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, guys, let's talk life on the road with chronic illness. Marin, a type one diabetic developed my sugar case after being approached about her ugly nylon swag bag. If she was going to talk about living with an invisible illness, she figured she'd better make it fashion. Several awards later, My Sugar Case designs and produces diabetes supply bags. But here's the awesome news. They're adjustable and can accommodate a whole lot more than just insulin and glucose monitors. Think all those meds you carry around no matter what you've got going on. A unique and innovative solution that empowers individuals living with chronic conditions to eliminate the uncertainty about storage, public image, and the transport conditions of their medications. My Sugar Case helps patients turn sickness into strength. Use code MSC10MSC for 10% off yours at Amazon.com. So what's a typical day looking like for you now? You said you're sort of in the middle of that gray area between wellness and, and total illness. So can you tell us how you're working to like balance the demands of work and life? I mean, you went from working as an Obama campaign staffer and and you know working full-time as a musician and I'm wondering how that sort of has manifested as you have been reborn again, (laughs) you know, with your book and, and all of the projects that you're working on now. Yeah. So I have like, I basically feel like if I had a more regular job, like I can basically work a little bit less than part-time before I just completely have to be back in bed and, and lying down. But I but I have the energy to do, I would say like maybe a little bit less than half of what I would normally be able to do. But mm. I've just really em- embraced that that's like, that that's what I can do and that that is enough and that that's so much better than the 0% I was able to do for a long period of time. And so, so I'm really careful about, um, and, and this is, I think, because 
because the nature, because I'm, you know, right now I'm just like a full-time writer and, and that that's all that I'm doing. And so I have a lot of control of my schedule. And so mm. I just don't, um, I'm really serious about not working past where I'm able to like, like yeah. to, to not, because it, I just know at this point, cause it's, cause that I always push myself way, way, way farther than I should. And I used to do, I think what most people do, which is like, just try to sort of psychologically reward yourself for being tough. And like, mm. you know, you're so busy and you're so stressful. And like, that means that you're like a productive. Well, cause we worker. glorify overwork, don't we? You we know? do. And yeah. And so I feel like that I've actually, I feel like I've, I've really gotten a lot better in that way where I just do not glorify that anymore. And I'm mm. sort of allergic to it. And like the people that I know that still Same. do that, I'm like, I don't, I can't listen to it. I've started about. calling it out. Like when I'm, especially <laughs> yeah. among groups of women who are mm-hmm. maybe entrepreneurs or trying to do something with their business. And I'm like, we all need to stop this language of I'm so busy right now. Cause it doesn't serve yeah. anyone. Yeah. Especially just because it's like, I mean, there's lots of studies about this. That's like pro- productivity goes up when you increase the amount that you're resting and the amount that you're off and and it just, it's, it's a false way of signaling that you're like doing a great job. It's not, yeah. it's usually not, not real. And so I think it's just important to, to not have it be both that you're wrong about that, but like you're, you're actually, you're not being more productive and you're harming yourself. So, mm. cause one thing, if like you actually were just like crushing it and getting tons of work done, <laughs> but like usually people are not. And so they're just stressing themselves out really badly and uh, that will literally make you sick <laughs> and making themselves sick. And so, and so yeah. I'm, I'm quite serious about just like practicing a lot of self-forgiveness around like I have done my, however many, you know, three or four or five hours of yeah. work. But again, this has taken like, 17 years to get to that point. Uh, yeah. Uh, yes. And like, yeah. and, and it's still like, even like saying it out loud right now, I'm like, mm, there's probably like people that are going to be like, oh, I wish that I could do that. And yeah. like, you're so lucky, but it's like, I know I, I just, I, I, I could have been in the exact same, I have been in the exact same position before where I would push myself to work, you know, 10 or 12 hours and be so sick by the end of the day. Mm. And I still would have gotten exactly the same amount done that I'm getting done now, yeah. um, which is, I just make sure that I sort of turn everything off, work from, I have sort of the part of the day that my brain works the best for for doing work, like from about seven until noon and then um and then after that I just don't do like computer work I'll do I can do something like this talking um interviews things like that but I don't do any more um, mm. computer work um and <laughs> I also so something I talked about in the book which is uh, this is complicated but when I had that injury that pelvic injury it shut mm. down function in the colon and uh my it just completely stopped working and to take all these laxatives which created this horrible thing called that we called the bowel olympics where i was like having to take like tons and tons and tons of laxative every day just to empty the bowel and, and when you so say tons I, you were taking the amount that someone takes to go for a colonoscopy daily just to have a daily. bowel movement Yes. Like me actually, so I actually just had to do a colonoscopy prep. <laughs> and so it's a little bit less than that because I just experienced it again. Mm. But it's like almost, I would say maybe like three quarters. Cause I as it began for the first half of it, I was like, this is what I do every day. Mm. But then as it started to proceed, 
I mean, a, a colonoscopy prep is truly horrifying. I was like throwing up. It was horrible. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, but very close to that. Like, like mm-hmm. no one should be anywhere near <laughs> that amount of laxative use, but that's what it was necessary to empty the colon so that it wasn't pressing down on all those uh, pelvic nerves. And so mm-hmm. anyway, so I, I just had, um, an ileostomy, which I talk about in the book as like one of the things that I might be doing. And I, I had that done in December. And the main reason we did this was to free me from the bowel Olympics because mm. I took to do that. And so like the, the last few months have been this like, I'm free. Like I get to go out and socialize with people again in the mornings. And then yeah. like, now it's like coronavirus. <laughs> yeah. Now you can't socialize. Yeah. Oh, God. So, oh, the irony. <laughs> yeah. Oops. <laughs> Oops. But this um, does mean that it frees you up in terms of not having to be like tied to the toilet and tied to yeah. having to take suppositories or other laxatives yeah. in order to just use the toilet on a regular basis. Yeah. And like, and this is like a really good example. Like, I do talk a lot about functional medicine in the book, how important I think this is as like a way of thinking about health and all illness. Hmm. But I also don't think that it's like that, you know, wellness stuff and food as medicine is enough for a lot of cases. And I'm a perfect example of that. Like I needed multiple surgeries because we just could, no matter what we did with mm-hmm. any type of wellness intervention, there's just no way to like uh, wellness away. Yeah. Like a huge wad of scar tissue around all your pelvic nerves. That's like yeah. shut down colon function and caused all this pain. Like that's something that, that's different and you need to, you need to do what you need to do. Um, and so in my case, I, I look forward to the day that I'm able to take advantage of the fact that I can leave the house now in the, in the morning. Yeah. Um, I guess I could, I guess I could just start going for walks just because six, six feet, six feet social distancing. I I could do that. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll make it like 12 feet just in case for you. Cause yeah, just in case you're like, you're very special. (laughs) I know. In the best ways, in the best ways. So we've talked about how you've been in situations where doctors haven't believed you. And this has been a very common thread in your experience and in the experience of so many other Womies. I'm wondering Mm -hmm. if you can walk us through one of those experiences that really maybe sticks out for you as a a very key moment in your your health journey, somewhere where you were confronted and, and forced to validate the fact that you had something going on that someone didn't believe, whether that was a practitioner or a friend. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. The, the, I mean, the incident that really does come to mind is, uh, is that, that person at the Mayo Clinic, like that, mm. that incident with that guy. Nobody will know unless they've actually read the book. Cause we know that you had like one good doctor who gave you the CRPS <laughs> diagnosis and another one who was like, well, we can't help you. Yeah. <laughs> Which hearing um, that from someone at the Mayo Clinic has got to be a bit of a blow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was. About, it was all, I saw five other doctors. They all said the same thing that it was, Wow. it was just me. Yeah. That it was in your head. Um, mm-hmm. um, or, or if they didn't say that, uh, like specifically, they were like, well, we don't exactly know what's going on here, but I want to recommend like a regimen of antidepressants and anti-anxiety medications mm-hmm. and, you know, a series of interventions along those lines, as well as cognitive behavioral therapy, et cetera. So 
I mean, they did say that. They just yeah, didn't they say, told you it was all in your head, but with the with the symptom management saying yeah, exactly. And so, mm-hmm. which is which is I think just as common. Um, you don't have to say, um, "Ma'am, I think this is a psychological problem, not a physical problem." Mm-hmm. Like it's clear if you're if all you're doing is recommending uh, antidepressants or. Uh, without talking about any of the physical bases. Um, well, and you you also talked a lot about you know the antidepressants and also birth control that was constantly offered you. You know that like mm-hmm. you were you were given band aids a lot for these problems, mm-hmm. and there was very little searching for the root cause. And it's only the practitioners who've searched for the root cause who've really helped you in the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, one one incident that happened kind of early on that was like the. Uh, <laughs> This really was, I do feel like a turning point for me was I went, I had just started to like, I had met my first Womi, this woman Mm. uh, we call Charlotte in the book. And she was like the very first person I'd ever met that was like, just like me. She had actually, her problems were also sort of urinary in nature and she had all these digestive problems and she had really managed them by doing like a candida cleanse and, and which you know, is, is really just another way of saying like an intervention in her gut health. And, um, and so she had done that and she had encouraged me to do that. And, and I had, it was just like the very first time anything, even wellness related had crossed my radar because this is like 2005, which at the time it's hard to remember, but like now wellness is ubiquitous. And yeah, but then it was very woo-woo. Very. I mean, like it was, so, I was mm. the only person that was like in my circle that was in any way interested in these things. Mm. And so this is, so this woman, she's like the first person that introduces me to this. I start reading all these books and I was like, oh my God, I was like, this is desc- it was the first time I'd had myself described uh, back to to me, like mm. instead of describing myself over and over again to doctors and being told like, you know, does not compute, this is not real. <laughs> yeah. And like, the, yeah. And so I was like, my mind was blown. I was like, oh my God, I've figured it out. This is definitely a part of what's going on with me. And this descri- this explains so much. I was on all those antibiotics. I've got candida, I've regret, et cetera. And so um, I went this I, oh, and I had gone on like a, I had gone on that candida cleanse and I had really improved. And so then I went to go uh, to, for a follow-up with a gastroenterologist that I had seen previously. And I went back to that doctor who, you know, otherwise is like a, a nice enough guy. Um, and I was so excited to talk to him about gut health stuff. And I was like, and I, so I just went and I was like, you know, tell, what do you think about all of this? Like, what do you think about diet? Could I be doing this? Could I be doing that? Like, and he looks at me and he just rolls his eyes and he's like, oh, Sarah. It's like, diet has nothing to do with irritable bowel syndrome. This was from a gastro. Yes. I couldn't, when I read that, I was like, oh my God, I made me so mad. <laughs> Because it's so ignorant. It's like you're talking about, I mean, and you say this in the book, you're literally talking about the stuff that goes in the bowels, not affecting the bowels. It's insanity. (laughs) It does not, it does not make sense. And it, and so, but it was good for you for knowing then that it didn't make sense. I mean, yeah. And 
And I was, I think it was just like this, like I really had come in there like bright eyed and bushy tailed. I was so excited to talk to him about like everything I had learned so that we could like have this collaborative conversation about it. And, and then, and he was like, yeah, he was like, oh, Sarah, don't be so, don't believe everything you read, you know, like diet has nothing mm-hmm. to do with IBS. And not to mention, like, I didn't just have IBS, like my colon didn't function at yeah. all. <laughs> so, it wasn't IBS. It was something much more yeah. extreme. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, and that, that moment, it was just that, like, it was like these two different, like worldviews colliding. And it, that was the first moment that I was like, something is really, really wrong here. And Mm. there is something wrong in the system itself. And this is not just about me and what's wrong with me and that I'm just broken and this glitch in the system. There is something that's really wrong here. And Mm. that, that does stick with me as like this sort of like defining moment. Cause it did that like set me off in this like other course of like, okay, I am going to do the deep research here to learn and figure out everything that I can about this, because it is not going to be handed to me by the physicians that I'm working with. Like, and Absolutely. That was, but it took me, that was, that was pretty far into it. Like that yeah. was like 2008. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, and this is, that was five years in already. Yeah. What about, I mean, we touched on this before this idea of privilege. Do you think mm-hmm. that your circumstances may have been different if you presented other so in another way than you are, perhaps if you'd been male or mm. if you had been a woman of color, you know, like these are two very obvious disparate experiences, but do you think that things would have been different in the story of Sarah Rainey if you had been something other than you are? Yeah. So I've thought about this a lot. So mm. for sure, I think if there was like any other like overlay of marginalization on top of my own just experience of being a woman, it would be worse. Like if I was a person of color, I think if I was trans, I think whatever extra layer, I think it would be worse. But I do think that like the big thing, at least in this area, I don't think in general in the world, the worst thing is to be a woman. But I think in this particular Mm. area, it is the being female that is what causes you to be treated so so badly like the because I've done so many interviews with so many people and it's definitely including lots of people of color and trans Mm. people and it's it's definitely I think worse but it's not what it's not it is not what is causing you to be treated badly is is uh like if you're a woman of color I think you would probably be treated worse than me for sure but that's not the reason the whole reason that you're being treated badly. I think it's yeah. the being female. Yeah. Um, what if, what if you had been a man and it had been like a testicle testicular issue? You know what I mean? Like, I wonder if it would have been solved yeah, right away. I don't know. And so one thing is that one thing, cause there are a lot of men who also mummies, uh, men mm-hmm. of mysterious illness that have these problems and they are treated, um, not very differently, but I, I really think that that has to do with the fact that they essentially have a woman's disease that mostly women have these problems. And so that's how the uh, framework for thinking about them gets associated with being with like, Oh, this is just Mm. this unserious problem. And it's not on purpose. It's not like, well, we don't like women. And so we're going to treat these illnesses poorly because they predominantly affect women. It's all unconscious, but because that unconsciously gets applied to things that that women predominantly experience, then the casualties of that are men who also experience mm. uh, 
a problem that is predominantly affecting uh, women. And so yeah. that's my experience is that men who are like me, they are being treated in a very similar way, but it's because they've got this illness that is being treated the way that it is because it predominantly affects women, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Totally makes sense. So can you tell us what's next for Sarah Ramey? What's, what's next in, in the growth of WOMI advocacy? Um, well, so um, right now this book just came out and, you know, I'm a very like introverted person and like a very, especially like on the internet, I do I, I hate the internet <laughs> and I, uh, except just, during COVID times, that's where it serves yeah, us. I know right that's now. true. That's true. Um, it has been amazing to watch like, I, all the stuff that I really needed when I was sick in terms of like people checking in, like being good friends, like it's unbelievable, isn't it? Yeah. Let's have a game night. Like it's no big deal. Why didn't we do that years ago? <laughs> I know I, I'm actually working on an article about this. That's like, listen, I'm not trying to downplay any of the stuff that everybody's going through right now, but don't forget this. Like you have people in your life that need, that are going through everything that you're going through right now, the isolation, the fear of illness, the uh, their job up in smoke, like just all of it is exactly what it's like to be somebody with a chronic illness where you're socially isolated. So everything that if you're an able-bodied person that's experiencing those things for the first time and is like freaking out about how bad it is, mm. do not forget that once this is over, be sure to continue to support the people in your life who who basically have like their lives are COVID-19 era yeah. uh, behavior and, um, and they need the same things that you need now, all of this social connection and game night and all of those things. Um, so don't, don't forget the woomies yeah. this is over or just Absolutely. all, all yeah. disability. Um, but anyway, so yeah, I think now, I mean, I don't know. I'm thinking about it a lot because I thought it was going to be different because I was not anticipating. You you won't believe this. I was not anticipating a global pandemic right at the moment of <laughs> this book coming out. And so, well, I mean, how, how could we have anticipated it? But it's in many ways, it's been a gift to the disability community because we're able to be like, see, you know, yeah, but it's also a source of great frustration because it's like, well, this is what we ask. We ask for these accommodations yeah, for the last yeah. 20 years, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I have been thinking, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm still actually just trying to figure out how to kind of best be of service because I'm mm. kind of somebody that like goes deep into the, into the cave for a long period of time to work on something and then comes out with like a book or an album mm-hmm. or something like that. I'm not really like a content producer. <laughs> um, so, But I'm I, sorry. I thought everyone was required to be a content I producer know. at this point in history. You know? I know. I know. And I see that and I'm like, oh, but uh, what about, I don't think I could. Like my agent asked me to. <laughs> I know. And so yeah. I, I think about that a lot. Uh, luckily right now is, you know, Nobody needs my content right now just because. Well, I, I would heartily just... disagree because I, I can't encourage everyone more to check out the book because there were so many moments reading the book that I sat there and I was like, oh, that's my story. And then yeah. I texted friends of mine and said, you need to read this book because this is your story, you know? And mm. um, I, well, I that, think that's that where is... it's very vital. 
Well, the book, I feel, that's what I mean. I feel great about the book itself mm. and that, that I really hope that it does find the, the people that are like us and also the people that love the people like us, because mm. I think that that that's the one thing that, that I really hope for from this book is like, not so much like my own advocacy, but just like for the book itself to be a mirror that like people can feel seen. And also like, I've had a bunch of people say to me that they've given it to their physician or to their psychiatrist or to their parent or something like that. Oh, that's very smart. That that makes me feel really good because Mm. those are actually the people that, that really really (laughs) because like, I think people like us, like it can be really helpful to have your experience mirrored back to you. But if you've already had that, then maybe, maybe not as much, but, but so many people, they just, it's invisible to them. They just have Mm. no idea. And they like, there is something about, you know, storytelling and being like brought all the way into it that, it, that I think can have an effect of like, Oh shit. It's mm. <laughs> really, this is really I, happening. I, this is really happening. And I really am one of those people that thought <laughs> some of these unkind things of it. So many friends be like, Oh my God, I'm so sorry. I was definitely. <laughs> yeah, but you, you people. say yourself that you are one of those people too. You know, yeah, I think exactly, exactly. We go through these experiences because we're being challenged in our beliefs and it's important to be challenged in that way regularly, no matter who you are. That is exactly right. Is that that shouldn't be that this is what I think is so important for physicians. It's that it cannot, because I do think psychologically what's going on is that there's this ego fragility syndrome Mm. of like, if I don't know what's going on, then that's too uncomfortable. And so I have to make it the patient's psychological Hmm. problem so that I don't have to sit with that discomfort. I really feel like that's frequently what's going on and that just cannot be allowed like that is a that is an emotional skill that like you have to grow out of if you're a physician you are not allowed Mm. to be so sort of emotionally inept that like you're gonna blame something on the patient that is not the patient's fault I mean that just can't that just that should be baseline like yeah, you just that just should not be allowed. And that's not too much to ask. Like, this is a time where, you know, we are seeing the very best of doctors. And I love doctors. And this is like, what we're seeing right now is like the reason that we love doctors, but mm-hmm. it isn't like an inoculation for not doing some of these other really important things. And yeah. you, you, it being a hero in one area doesn't mean that you get to mistreat a patient in, in another area. And so, and that's hard. And I get that. And like, you just well, it's said, responsible like, use of power, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and that we all, that, 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 that's something that we all need to do. Like you just said, like I had to do that. I mm-hmm. definitely told my roommate in college who had chronic fatigue syndrome that I would drive her to the therapist and that I really thought she needed to do that. Mm-hmm. Like granted I was like 20, but I still did that. And so it's something that I just think has to be something that we think of this, this sort of like evaluation of the way that we're treating other people has to be sort of a, a constant evaluation. So, and that it's not something that you're running away from all the time as if like, if you find something bad, that, that that's going to dissolve your sense of self. And so yeah. you just have to constantly run away from it. I feel like that. That's it's constant evolution, thing. isn't it? It's that being open to the world changing in front of our eyes, which it's doing right now, mm-hmm. much out of the control of all of our, our, all of us, you know, and I think that that's a very important reminder, isn't it? To, 
yeah. take stock <laughs> and rethink. Yeah. 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 Definitely. So I like to wrap up my interviews with a couple of top three lists. And okay. um, I was wondering if you could give us your top three tips. Now I know it's hard to sort of narrow it down because you've obviously put a lot of thought into this in the book as well, but top three tips for someone who's a Womi, someone who's in this world of invisible chronic illness, or maybe suspects something is off. What would you recommend to our fellow Womis out there? So number one is to, to, to trust yourself is to just like, to just agree right now that you are going to forge an alliance with yourself and that Mm. that's primary and that everything else is secondary because that is going to be tested over and over and over again by not just by physicians. We didn't talk about this much, but it happens a lot in the wellness world as well, where it's like, Oh, maybe you like didn't think positively enough. And like, that's why you're sick or you didn't do my special, you know, yoga in Bali. I feel like that's that's, that overwhelming. I've talked to some people about that in the past as well, that overwhelming negativity that like, it must be in your head that you can't switch on the positivity or, or that you're not doing the work, you know, isn't, Mm -hmm. I I feel like there's a term for it, like the pink problem or something like that, but um, it is, it's an epidemic of its own sort. And you're absolutely right. It's like toxic positivity. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's it's, because obviously those things that, that, that you're seeing in, in that world, they are really useful. It's very important not to get stuck in victimization or blaming other people or being super, super, super negative all the time. Like it's important to develop, you know, your resilience and your resourcefulness and, you know, not blaming things on, on everybody else. But that does, that does not mean that you are 100% responsible for if you get sick, like that Mm. is just that, that makes me. No one would choose. (laughs) Well, I think that the bottom line is that no one would choose to go through what we've been through. No, no. And And why would you? Why in the world people are like, but secondary gains. I'm like, second, what? What gains? (laughs) What gains? I've spent $150,000 to feel like I'm halfway decent. That there, where's the game? Yeah. Yeah. You tell me. And yeah, but they will, they'll be like, well, think about all the attention that you're getting. You're like, I have been locked in a room for five years. I have literally had the opposite of attention. What are you talking Mm. about? And it's like people, yeah, but people get into their sort of worldview and their ideology. And especially if it becomes associated with how they um, make money, I think that people Mm. are really tied to a lot of these things. Like they're a whatever yoga teacher or positivity coach or whatever. And so it like has to be it has to be because that's what you're selling to people. And so it mm. has to be the way in the world. So, I, so there's a lot of problems there. So I think my number one recommendation is to just like trust that the way that you're feeling, especially like physically in your body, that that is real. And that whatever anyone says to you, like, especially if they're saying, no, that's not happening. Like there's no science to, to to explain why that is. Like that just means that the science has not been produced yet to explain mm. what you are experiencing. It does not mean that what you are experiencing is not real. And that's just that. that so that's number one. Mm. And um, number two, I talk a lot in the book about functional medicine. And, and the reason for that is because it's like, it. what I, I think of it as like the, it's kind of like a filter for 
the wild and woolly world of alternative medicine. It's kind of like feeding all of that through kind of an evidence-based um, filter that's kind of sorting out like the wheat from the chaff, so to speak. <laughs> and yeah. It's like, and some and, of the stuff that is actually woo-woo, because there is some actual woo-woo stuff. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. That, so it's kind of, it's like, because if you, because what happens, we talk about this in the book a lot, is like, well, there does come a point in conventional medicine where you're like, wait a second, these people hate me and I'm not being helped. And so you- There comes a point, God, that happened to you in the first five minutes. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) that's true. But I didn't realize it at the time. No, that's that's the great irony, isn't it? Yeah, but there comes a point where you realize it and then you defect essentially into alternative medicine. But the problem is, is that alternative medicine is not a discipline. It's not like a singular- thing it's just a big collection of everything that is alternative to Mm -hmm. conventional medicine and so there is a lot of nonsense out there Mm -hmm. and and and, or I should say a lot of stuff that maybe works for some people but is not doesn't work for everybody maybe that's the most generous way to put it and so what functional medicine is kind of doing is really taking the things that a that there's been like some scientific study of these things to to say well it really does look like gut interventions make a make a big difference in dealing with x y and z problem um uh or food as medicine or all these things and so so it's a way of i think making sure that you don't just get stuck in an eddy of flushing all of your money down the toilet uh doing a million different alternative things because you don't know what else to do. I think functional medicine is kind of like the fastest way to try some of the the most effective interventions for WOMI type problems. Mm. That said, there are some real problems. It is not covered by uh, insurance yet. And so it's really expensive. That's not Mm. functional medicine's fault. It's conventional medicine would be extremely expensive if not covered by insurance. It's just just the insurance part. I I think that's going to change actually in this crisis just because agreed we're seeing how it's it's broken we're seeing just how it's broken (laughs) yeah and and, and it's clear that like our mortality rate is probably going to be a lot higher because you're much more susceptible if your underlying health is poorer and so Mm -hmm. it i just think there's going to be a much wellness has already moved so firmly into the mainstream that i just think that there's going to be pressure for people to um to take matters into their own hands, but, and then that's going to put pressure on the insurance companies to uh, cover the things that can actually prevent people from becoming uh, very expensive and sick all the time. Yeah. I think it's an insurance in, in their best interest. It's like one of these rare instances where like a Goliath, like the big insurance companies and a David, like a regular person, our interests are actually aligned. It's like mm. very, very unusual, but right now it is like there, it's so expensive for everyone in the United States to be chronically sick for them, for insurance companies yeah. that they have to pay all those bills. And so, and we've been so focused on the acute care, as you said, that focus exactly more on and, prevention. And so, yeah. I think if they can focus on prevention and also clearly, you know, not not for all problems, but you can really reverse a lot of the the worst of some of these chronic illness issues with things like functional medicine. Anyway, so I hope that it gets covered by functional. Med- I mean, by insurance, but it's not mm-hmm. right now, and so it's pretty expensive. So, what I would always just encourage anybody to do is to just like 
start by learning about it because that in and of itself is like a whole thing. It's like mm-hmm. it's like a whole learning experience to read a book by, you know, Mark Hyman or Chris Kresser or Amy Myers or Cherry Walls. There's a bunch of bunch of good ones. And um, to just learn about kind of like that way of thinking about health, I think is a good place to start before you spend any any of your hard-earned money. Um, mm. And then the third thing I would say actually now is like to, to, to do, to participate at the levels that you're able to and all the things that we're all doing right now because of COVID-19 in terms of social connection, but to be explicit with the people around you that yes. you really would like this to be an ongoing thing for the future because it's so in the same ways that it's healing to them and in a way that I think people can actually finally understand just like to say like I'm so glad that we're all doing this like this is something I really hope that we can do moving forward even after this crisis because I really do think I know because I did some of that when I was sick and it helped me so much but I didn't do nearly as much as I'm doing like Mm. right now Um, and I know that it would have meant the world to me to have a regular game night. I mean, it's a little different when you're really, really, really sick. Yeah. But even just a regular even, chat. Yeah. A chat or like Netflix party that that's mm. like, uh, like that was, we did like a Jerry Riggs, like Netflix party, Like that didn't exist as a function when I was sick, but we would just all start, we would press play at the same time and yeah. then have like a chat open in Facebook. And so now you can just do that in Netflix on this thing called Netflix party. And, and it's just a way to, connect to people in a situation where you're really isolated and that isolation absolutely compounds the the psychological suffering but also the physical suffering I think of these problems and so whatever you can do to kind of build up those social connections in your life even virtually no matter how like because it is going to make you feel a little uh, dumb like did it, like like for me like it always did it I was I was like well, when you're oh. like a little I'm tech phobic so I get it <laughs> yeah and like catching up to the like, technology yeah or even just like I actually meant like feeling kind of like I felt bad that I was asking people mm. to help me which is so sad <laughs> but that I hard. Think is such a real thing it is very hard to ask people to take time out of their lives to do something special for you, especially if you've got something that's like not taken seriously. It's like extra hard to ask for that, but it's just, it is so important that you overcome that and you Mm -hmm. do ask for that help. And then you kind of make it into a, a a thing that is, that is scheduled in. That's like a, a regular thing, not something you have to ask for over and over and over again, but that's like your Thursday nights with your best friends or whatever, or your, first Sunday of the month with whoever, whatever. Mm. Those would be my three things. Because it gives you something to look forward to as well, which enables you to like cultivate more positivity in general, right? That you've got something to pull you out of the hole if necessary. Totally. Totally. Mm. And I would really, yeah, encourage you to set up like as many of those things as mm. possible with different people. And like they, it's good for those people too. Yeah, <laughs> like, absolutely. I think that's something important to remember. Mm, I love that. So the last top three list is now we know that you have experimented with numerous lifestyle changes throughout this experience of diagnosis and treatment and symptom management. I'm wondering if you can give us a top three things in your life 
that give you unbridled joy that you're totally unwilling to compromise on. So this can be a guilty pleasure, a secret indulgence, a comfort activity, like, you know, doing FaceTime with your friends and stuff. What would your top three things be that are your like, woe me happy list? Yeah. So my first one is definitely uh, my cat. Matilde. <laughs> Matilda. <laughs> Matilda, Matilda. I can see her sleeping in the background right there. there. <laughs> She's very sweet. Um, yeah. So I, I'm a big fan of if you're able to, of having a pet, because I just think mm. it really, it just, it does buffer the the extreme isolation. Like if you are really isolated, like I was. Um, yeah. Uh, and I really, I just, I love my cat. What can yeah. I, what can I'm I the same. I am so with you. <laughs> I cannot recommend uh, cats more. Cause like dogs yeah. are, look, dogs are great. Cause That's they'll get you out. Yeah. But mm-hmm. when you're someone who deals with fatigue and you don't mm-hmm. have as much energy to give, cats yeah. are amazing because they're, they're amazing. around. They will love on you. And mm-hmm. all you have to do is feed them and scoop some poop. It's not too much. <laughs> yeah, it's not too much. And it really does make a big difference. Like I've yeah. had times where I had to give my cat to my mom for a while because of whatever I was, I, I wasn't able to take care of her. And I was so, my, I was worse. Like I was so much yeah. sadder during those times. So I really, if you can adopt a cat, mm-hmm. um, um, uh, so for me, another uh, big one is music. Um, that's just always been like, that's just saved my life in a number of ways. It's just making music and, um, uh, making sure I don't, I don't let that go by the wayside too much. Um, mm-hmm. cause it's easy for me actually to do that. Some people, some artists, you know, they just create, create, create. And I, I'm kind of not that way. I really have to be really intentional about it, but mm-hmm if I do that, it like makes my life just so much richer and I'm just so much happier. Um, Mm. um, and then, yeah. And then, I mean, this is like such a broad category. It's the same as the last thing. It's just friends. It's like, I just, I just, my close friends, I just give me such joy and I, you know, also, I think this happens with a lot of people. <laughs> Illness does sort of start to like cut away like the people in your life that are not great, <laughs> not great for you. So true. And that I actually, I was thinking about that recently, like I'm grateful for, for that. And so grateful for the people that have really stood by me this whole time. And like, I just, those people bring me an incredible amount of joy. And so like, mm. it's kind of the same thing of just like, the more intentional I am with like connecting those people, setting up regular things with them, like writing letters to them, like that just really does make my life feel like a lot fuller, better. And more connected. I bet too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, that's absolutely beautiful. Now, as we sort of round things up, can you tell everyone who's tuning in right now where they can find not only you and your book, but also your music if they want to listen? Yeah. So my website is Sarah Marie, Sarah with an H, Marie Ramey.com. And the book and is we'll called link the to this on the website as well. Yeah. 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 Sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> That's okay. The book is called the lady's handbook for her mysterious illness. It's out with double day. And um, uh, yeah, you can get it 
on Amazon, I, I would recommend going to a site called IndieBound and that um, uh, will help you buy it from an independent bookseller because right now mm-hmm. that's just, there's so many booksellers that are genuinely uh, in, in, in a really bad way. And so yeah. I, would, I would do that if you can. Mm-hmm. Um, you can also get it at, uh, if you can't afford it, um, you can get it at the library. Mm-hmm. And it's also uh, on audiobook if you have Audible already or something like that. That's one. Um, Did you read the audiobook too? I read the beginning of the audiobook and the end. I tried to do it and it's so hard. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. like so It's probably reliving a lot of it, yeah. Yeah, and but and I was gonna say emotionally and just physically, they, they warned me. They were like, "You're not gonna be able to do it. It's, it's like a lot for regular yeah. people." So mm-hmm. actually, though, I so I I did the beginning and then I went home and I was like, I wrote to them. I was like, "I'm not gonna be able to do it." So they sent me a bunch of names of people that could read it, and I listened. And I didn't really like any of them, and so I I went and I listened to like a hundred different readers, and I found this one woman that I really liked. They asked her, she did it. And once she was done recording, I got this long letter from her. She's a wallmate. Yeah, there <laughs> we she, go. <laughs> wow. She went into the studio and was like reading this and it's like, what the? Yeah. <laughs> she was like, this it's like reading your own mind. story back to you. Yes. Yeah. She was like, this is like reading my journal out loud in a recording booth. This is, mm-hmm. and she had like wanted to write a book, but it was just too, you know, it's, it's hard to write a book. It's and really it's hard. wonderful that that happened. Yeah. I know. I was like, of course. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and also Um, like, if you, if you throw a stone at this point, you're more likely to hit a Walmi than not. Yes. I mean, (laughs) yes. That's just the data (laughs) that we have. That's what we know. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, Anyway, so you can, uh, so those are all the ways you can find the book. And then for music, the, my uh, music name is Wolf Larson, which was my grandfather's name and Mm. it's L-A-R-S-E-N. And you could just, you can Google that or go to wolflarsonmusic.com. That's um, wonderful. Yeah. Well, Sarah, it's been such an absolute honor speaking to you today. I'm really glad we were able to connect and oh, very thank you. And yeah, just really pleased to be able to give you an additional platform to talk about your story because it's so important that we have Womies like you sharing stories. So thank you so thank much for being on the so show today. Much. Ah, thank you so much. It was such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Thank you. That's it, folks. Thanks for listening. As always, please check us out online at uninvisiblepod.com and all over the social media world at uninvisiblepod. We love your feedback and suggestions, so please drop us a line via the website if you have questions, ideas for topics to cover in future episodes, or just want to say hello. We're all about relationships and collaboration here, so credit where credit is due. Music for this episode is by Sean Hart, who can be found at seanhart.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. 